I want to start out by covering two things that came up at the end of last session. Tonight we're going to be answering this question, or at least heading in the direction of answering the question of which version of the Bible should we use. But uh, before that, last time, uh, as, we were getting, as we were leaving, Anthony asked the question as to when the books began to be bound together and, and collected there. So I was referring to some of the major codexes, which is a word for book, that have been found. But um, So I, w- I was a little incorrect in what I said, that, they, they, uh, that the earliest one was maybe around 70 or, or 90 or right around the turn of the century there. But uh, the truth is, I, I do believe that they were collected early on, but we just don't have any of those um, in existence. Even these major codexes that become the base for the versions that we have today, even those are not complete. So I don't know exactly which or when we actually have a book where all of the, the books of our Bible are there. I, I don't know the date of that. So I'd have to do a little bit more of, of an investigation into that. Uh, the other question was, uh, this was asked afterwards, and it was about the councils, just to clarify what role did the councils play in the determination of which books belonged to the Bible. So I found this chart, and hopefully you're able to see it, and I thought that this was helpful. So there's uh, the left side is the incorrect view, the right side is the correct view, and this comes from a book by Geisler and Nix. And the incorrect view, the points of the incorrect view are, the, are these. The church is determiner of canon. That's incorrect. Instead, the church is the discoverer of the canon. So I liked that. I think that's true. The church is mother of the canon. In other words, the church creates the canon. But the correct view is the church is the child of the canon. In other words, it comes to us. It's given to us. The church is the magistrate of the canon. The correct view, the church is the minister of the canon. The incorrect view, the church is regulator of the canon. The correct view is the church is the recognizer of the canon. The incorrect view, the church is judge of the canon. The correct view, the church is witness of the canon. The incorrect view, the church is master of the canon. The correct view, the church is servant of the canon. So you'll see in each of these positions, the incorrect versus the correct that basically what you have on the one side is that the church determines what books go in the Bible, which is incorrect. The other side is that the church receives the books of the Bible, and that is correct. So we will come back to that a little bit later as we consider what version of the Bible we should use, because the, the idea comes up one more time. All right, any questions before we move on? Okay, so we're going to start today. Which version of the Bible should we use? And one of the first things that I want to consider is uh, some points of pride. Now, I know you want me to tell you which one you should use. I know that's what you're all looking for. Uh, uh, I'm not going to do that. So sorry to disappoint. Uh, If you have the handout there, and I think Susan might need one, and uh, maybe Beverly might need one. I don't know, Anthony, if you can help me with the extra copies there to hand those out. But uh, you'll see from this handout, there are quite a few versions that are available to us in our day. So, which version of the Bible should we use? Now, the points of pride, the points of pride are, are points that people just 
out of natural tendency, just kind of gravitate towards because obviously we want to use the best version that's out there, and, and that's, you know, the goal, obviously. But once we have determined something like that, you know, we, we can kind of fix ourselves upon that and um, just maybe have an unhealthy approach to what's going on here. So the first point of pride is this. My version is the best version. So, you know, you decide, you pick, I don't know, what, whatever version, let, let's say the ESV. Once, you just, once you've landed on the ESV and then all of a sudden it's like, well, the ESV is the version of the Bible and everybody should use that. We, we just kind of tend to have that kind of a mentality. So you have, for example, the Latin Vulgate. Now, the Latin Vulgate is a translation of the, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament into Latin, and it was used in the church, in the Catholic church, for a thousand years. I mean, it was used in the church before the church became the Catholic church for a thousand years. Now, that's a pretty long time. If you compare that with the English Bibles that we have, you know, we don't, our, our oldest English Bibles are, are barely half, you know, that, and as old as they might be, they haven't been used for that long. So, you know, a thousand years for a version of the Bible is pretty significant. And during that thousand years, actually, there was very little translation going on because, well, you know, they had the version of the Bible. And any attempt to circumvent or uproot it or throw it, you know, throw it out and use something else was really frowned upon. As a matter of fact, as we you know, enter into, you know, the Middle Ages and, and uh, you know, as time goes on and people are wanting the version, a version of the Bible in their own language, the Catholic Church actually persecuted and burned the books and the writings and maybe burned the person on, at the stake if they dared translate into their own language. Now, there's more going on than just translating it into a language. In the Catholic Church, you have this false idea that the the general population is not capable of reading the Bible and understanding it for itself. It needs the priesthood in order to proclaim or to, de to declare or to teach the truth. And so that's, you know, kind of plays into the picture. It wasn't just about translating it into your language, but uh, uh, there's a whole lot of dynamic, as is often the case. You know, it's not just one point that's involved. There's usually a whole lot of things that are kind of working together in order to bring a movement, you know, to a certain place and causing them to react. So, anyway, my version is the best version. Human nature has not changed. We want to believe, and this is important. I mean, so we want to believe that the version that we've landed on is the version and, and everybody should use that version of the Bible. But there's some pride that goes along in that, and we just have to be careful with this. The second one, the second point is this that God's primary language is English. Now, <laughs> now we might laugh at that, but you know, it kind of all goes together. That, you know, we speak English, and therefore English is the best language in the whole entire world, and we live in the United States, and the United States is the best country in the whole entire world, and you know, it just kind of goes on. My house is the best house, and you know, you know we, we just kind of take pride in, in who we are and, and you know, what we do. And Human nature kind of gravitates to this kind of thing. Let me give you an example. So somebody comes in, let, let's say Koreans come over from South Korea, and, 
you know, they come here and they live here and they start their businesses and they want to decide which church they, they go to. Do you know, predominantly, they will find other South Koreans and go to a South Korean church here in America? It's because we have this propensity to, to gravitate to things that are like us or things that, that we have embraced. And so this, again, is human nature. So this is what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther translated uh, a version of the Bible into German. So he said this, among a whole lot of other things. Martin Luther was a very fiery character. You did not want to get on Martin Luther's wrong side. He was just uh, very abrasive. Anyways, he said things along the line that uh, in translating, he maintained that the translation must speak as clearly as the original text. So in other words, he's looking for a really good translation of the original text. That was critically important. Because the text shines brightly to illuminate the hearts of sinful men. And we are talking about the Word of God, so this is not just kind of a minor thing. This is really important. Therefore, he said, God the Holy Spirit must speak German. Right? Well, that's what he spoke, and he was creating a German translation, and, and that's the idea. Well, of course, God speaks German, and he speaks English, and he speaks all of these other languages. And what we are looking for is the Bible in our language so that we can read it and understand it. So that was Martin Luther. The Holy Spirit must speak German. I love that. I thought that was just kind of funny because my, my version of that would be the Holy Spirit speaks English. And he does. The third point here, point of pride, is this, that my version is providentially ordained by God. My version is providentially ordained by God. Now, you have Jerome in 405. That's pretty early. If you go to Bethlehem, there's the church over here, and there's a statue of Jerome in the front because he's honored uh, at this church. And, of course, it's uh, the Catholics worship there and the Orthodox worship there. I'm not sure if the Catholics and the Orthodox, and there's probably some Protestants that will worship there in the same church. If you go to the if you go to the if you go to Israel, this this is kind of the thing that goes on. You have Orthodox and Catholics and Protestants all sharing the same buildings a lot of times. So they come up with a schedule and they work around it, and you know you just kind of share the building these important buildings, anyways. Well, there's a statue of Jerome here because down in the dungeon. There was a place where Jerome did his work. So you can, you can go down below the church, and there's this series of caverns. And they, they have identified one. Is it the one? Well, you know, it's not as certain as anything else, you know, over there. But um, he clearly worked in Bethlehem somewhere, down in a cave. And he transla- that's where he did his translation work. And so, like I said, you know, it was... Uh, predominantly used in the church for a thousand years and after uh, you know the Vulgate you know then you have the the Reformation and that's when things just begin to branch out so this was really special his translation was really special it was it was important in the life of the church for a very long time was it perfect well of course not and he would have never said that it was perfect as a matter of fact there are some flaws serious flaws to it and that is not to be unexpected when we have one person that is making a translation. But you, but you see, as time goes on, or you know, in other circumstances and situations, you have a different kind of mindset that is involved. So we have what's called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is often re, um, 
It's kind of identified by these letters, LXX. Now, the LXX is Roman numerals, and the LXX stands for, well, the L is 50, and then you have X and X, that's 10 and 10. So it's 50, 60, 70. And you had, with the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, as you can imagine, you have people that were wanting to use the scriptures in their language, in Greek, in the Roman world, and so they took time and great pains to translate the Old Testament into, which is in Hebrew, to translate it into Greek. Now, Philo, who was a historian, he lived in the first century, he said this concerning the process of how the Septuagint came into being. He said, Therefore, being settled in a secret place, and nothing even being present with them, the translators, except the elements of nature, the earth, the water, the air, and the heaven, concerning the creation of which they were going in the first place, to explain the sacred account. For the account of the creation of the world is the beginning of the law. They, like men inspired, prophesied, not one saying one thing and another, but every one of them, all set, there's 72, apparently 72 people doing the translation work. They all went to their, their private places and they did not talk to each other at all, so the account goes. But every one of them employed the self-same nouns and verbs as if some unseen prompter had suggested all their language to them. And yet, who is there who does not know that every language and the Greek language above all others is rich in a variety of words and that it is possible to vary a sentence and to paraphrase the same idea so as to set it forth in a great variety of manners, adapting many different forms of expression to it at different times. So this is what Philo said is the account of the creation of the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Hebrew. He said that these 72 people, they went in their separate ways and they did their translation and when they came back, all 72 had the exact same translation. That's what Philo has just said. Now why would he, why would, why would they propagate this for the creation of a translation? They would do it because it, it is important. We're talking about the Word of God. We want to make sure that what we have is right. And we want to depend and upon the, the providence of God, which I do believe is fully at work to give us the Word of God that we have. We want to depend upon that in order to bring about this translation that we have. The Septuagint is pretty prominent, and it was used. As a matter of fact, um, well, concerning the Septuagint, you have Paul at a number of times. He is quoting from the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew Old Testament. That's how accepted the Septuagint was as their Bible version. And uh, to talk about the Hebrew Bible for a moment, when Jesus... We'll, we'll, well, I'm going to come back to Jesus in a moment. But anyway, you, you have this... this version of the Bible that you have a miraculous origin for so that you can look or, you know, the people, it gives confidence to the people that what you have is the Word of God. And that's really important. We need to know what we have is the Word of God. So you have this history. I, I seriously doubt that that was how the Septuagint was created. I, I, I can't dismiss it because obviously God is able to do something like that. But, you know, 
chances are that that's not how it came to pass. But anyway, it's a, so that's why I count it as a, a point of pride. You know, it's, it's like, well, our translation was miraculously given to us. So here it is. We've got it. So anyway, those are the three points of pride that we want to be uh, careful of as we consider this question. What version of the Bible that are we using? Now, I want to talk about inspiration versus translation because we talk about the giving of the Word of God. And we've been talking about this for several weeks now, I think three times. How did God give His Word to us? Well, we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Notice it says, All Scripture is given, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All right, so this is inspiration. This is the giving of the Word of God to the apostle, to the prophet, and that becomes foundational for the Word uh, coming to us. So who is inspired then in this way? As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, who, to whom was the Word, God's Word, given in this inspired way? Well, Isaiah was when he prophesied. Peter was when he wrote. Paul was when he wrote. Matthew when he wrote. Jeremiah when he prophesied and wrote. It, it was when you know, they received the word of God and they proclaimed it forth, forth. That is the inspiration of scripture. Everything after that is subject now to human error. Now what I mean by that is Jeremiah wrote, Jeremiah wrote his prophecies and Baruch helped him there. And as time goes on, or maybe I should use Isaiah. So Isaiah writes his prophecy, and, um, and then it has to be you know, copied and all of that. Well, after Isaiah delivers his prophecy, well, you have people, you have men just kind of repeating, you have others making copies, you have the Masoretes. The, the Masoretes were the ones who were kind of in charge of the Old Testament, and they went to great pains to make sure that what they were copying was correct. So they would, they would put little numbers in the margins, and they would count all of the letters, and they, they really made a whole lot of notes in the margin to make sure that the copies that they were making were you know, as correct as possible. Was it perfect? Well, no, there were mistakes. And others came back and corrected and you know, changed and fixed and all of that. So everything after the inspiration through the prophet and the apostle is subject to human error. And at first, that might seem like a problem, but just kind of bear with me because, you know, what God is doing here is really phenomenal because we could, I mean, if, if Jesus came now, we wouldn't have this problem, Right? Because, you know, we would just record it and make sure, you know, the computer's working and we have him speaking it. And, and then we could make copies really easy and just post it on the web and on Facebook. And, you know, it just wouldn't be any problem as far as knowing what he said. But he, God chose not to come in a time when it could be recorded. He chose to come at a very early stage in uh, the development of human history as far as technology goes. Now, how many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon? Charles Spurgeon lived in the 1800s, and there's a ton of his writings that are left, but there is no recording of his voice actually preaching a message. 
So what they did was, in order to give people a flavor or a sense of what Charles Spurgeon might have sounded like, they got his grandson to record. They recorded his grandson preaching one of his sermons. And uh, that, that was the attempt to, you know, to have a recorded you know, sermon by that great preacher, Charles Spurgeon. So we would like that if Jesus had come at a time where we could have recorded him, but he chose not to. Galatians 4.4 says he came right at the right time, and that touches so many things, including this, what we have here. So we don't want to be so proud to think some of these things that God is unable to work and to bring forth and to deliver his word to the entire world. He can do that, right? And we've already seen when we considered you know, the, the sufficiency of Scripture and the supremacy of Scripture, we've already seen how God is using His Word as His Word that is delivered to mankind that we are to follow and live by and, and uh, trust in fully. So He is able to do a whole lot of things. And what he did do was amazing, was miraculous, and providential in bringing us this Bible in English that we can open up as the Word of God. So, um, we don't want to be so proud that, to think that he did this for us and left the rest of the world to fend for itself. You know what I mean? If he delivered... Miraculous, miraculously and providentially, only for us, English-speaking people, but left everybody else to fend for themselves, that, that would not be in character with God. So we want to just kind of be careful and understand uh, what is happening here. So if we consider the providential work of God at this point, um, and I want us to be completely honest about this because... Really, it, it has a bearing on this. So, uh, it does not help us and our proclamation of the truth if we kind of fudge, fudge it a little bit, fudge the truth a little bit, or change it, or make it sound like really, really appealing. If, if we make those kinds of adjustments in a false kind of way, even if our intentions are right, that, that uh, does not be, help us any. We want to be honest. We don't have to be afraid of the truth. It doesn't help our faith in God if we have to fudge the facts or to accommodate our insecurities in some way or our pride in some way. We don't need to be afraid of the truth. So, for example, we might tra- travel to Zambia today, right? And we've done some work. Our church has done work in Zambia. We might travel to Zambia today, and they have versions of the Bible in their language, but those versions are, are not very good, honestly, in the Zambian dialects. First of all, there's so many of the dialects. And then the amount of people who are skilled in languages to be able to create, is, is just, it's just not been there like it is for other places. And so you go to Zambia, and when you talk about a Zambian wanting the word of God, what do they have to do in order to really... Get to the Word of God. They've got, they have to seek it out. They have to do some work for it. They have to learn other languages in order to attain it because it has not come to them in their languages and 
it, the reasons could, are, you know, a multitude here, um, but it hasn't come to them in their languages like it has come to other places. In English, however, for us, we are in a blessed and privileged position. Why? Now, this is the providence of God, because we have a long history of people who are smart, who speak English, and who love God. And when I say smart, they're, these are true Christians I'm talking about, and who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who have sought it out. Person after person after person, year after year after year. We have people that are, you know, coming together and arguing these things and wrestling with the, trouble, the troubles and the difficulties and trying to come and arrive at an uh, appropriate and true word of God. So we have a long history of this. We have, in our language, access to incredible resources. We have produced some accurate translations and some wayward ones as well, as we shall see. They're, they're, all, they're not all created equal, and we have to be aware of that. And we'll look at that sheet in a moment. But the point is that for a number of reasons, we can be quite confident about what we have, and we have enough information to continue to wrestle with some of the difficulties that are present. And so this is God's providence at work. Now, let me explain a little bit. There are about 6,000 Greek manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts. 6,000. That's quite a lot. To put it into perspective here, the Iliad of Homer, have you heard of the Iliad? There are about 643 manuscripts of Homer and fragments. Uh, 643, compare, that, that's one-tenth of the manuscripts that we have for the New Testament. Um, and yet, I mean, our society has received Homer without blinking an eye. You know, it's just kind of just accepted. You have the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Anybody ever heard of the Peloponnesian War? All right. There are eight manuscripts of that. And then the works of Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman historian. And there are two manuscripts of his works. Two, only two. And yet it is read and studied as history with only two manuscripts behind it. So when we're talking about the evidence for Scripture, it goes way beyond anything that we have in history. There is not even a comparison. I'm talking about the New Testament, of course. And then something phenomenal happens. And, and here I wanted to quote uh, Geisler and Nix again. It says, The number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. So what, what he's saying here is that not only do we have this manuscript evidence, which is quite significant, but then we have the writings of the early church that go back to the first century. These people are quoting the scriptures themselves in their writings. So these are not manuscripts of the Bible, but they are, you know, just like we might today. So the evidence just multiplies at that point. And so we can take the whole Bible that we have without fear, and say that God, through his providence, has brought to us, and we are in a privileged place here, the entire word of God without loss. 
from generation to generation. And he's used, you know, the people, the, the people of the, who believe in him throughout the centuries. All right? So that brings us to the translations here, the translations. So we have these 6,000 manuscripts, and they are not all the same. They're not identical. There are differences between them. As a matter of fact, they can be divided into two, generally, I mean, there's more than two, but these are two of the, the predominant ones, two text families. So you have the Alexandrian text type, and the two that I've listed there, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, are the oldest that we have, the, the oldest codexes, the oldest, you know, significant manuscripts for that family. And most of the recent trans versions of the Bible are based on those two. I'll show you some examples in a moment that you have to pay, uh, pay attention to. So on the other side, you have the Byzantine text family, and the oldest one is Codex Alexandrinus, and that's just a reference to where it was uh, found. And you have, not only do you have that codex, but you have the majority of manuscripts that are of this Byzantine text family. So, in other words, you have a few, relatively speaking, manuscripts in the Alexandrian family, just a relatively few, but they're older, quote-unquote. And then you have the Byzantine text family, which is also called the majority text, because the majority of the manuscripts fall into this text family. So I have now. So you have the King James and the New King James versions that are on that side. And I have to say, I am not a King James person only, but I am very uh, partial to the Byzantine text family. That that is my own personal position. Okay, so I am going to pick a version of the Bible that reflects the Byzantine text family, because it is the majority of the manuscripts there. Um, one of, one of my, my things is, uh, why are those two manuscripts oldest? Because nobody used them. That's why. And so they just kind of sat there and collected dust. Why do you have the majority of the manuscripts on this side? Because people used them, and they copied from them, and they just kept on you know, doing it over and over and over again. So I, I just have to say I'm partial to the Byzantine text family, and that's uh, the reason I use the New King James version of the Bible. But I do have to say that the differences between the two are probably less than 5%, and there's very little that is significant in the differences. So there are some issues that you're going to have to wrestle with. So who here does not have a New King James Version of the Bible? Does anybody have a more modern version? No, you don't. Oh, yeah, okay. No, I don't mean King James or New King James. All right, what, do you, what version do you have? New International, New International Version. Perfect, perfect. All right, so let's... Uh, I grew up reading that. New Internet, yeah, my wife did too, and I converted her. It took, a, took years and years and years, but finally I was successful in converting her. And she went out and got New King James without telling me. She did it in secret. I don't know how long she used it <laughs> before she told me. She bought the exact same kind, except in the New King James Version, that Thompson Chain reference Bible. But anyway, so uh, Susan, turn to Matthew chapter 17, 21 for me. And somebody else turn to Matthew 17, 21 in the New King James. Who, who would like to do that? Need a volunteer? Someone turn in the New King James Version? Hey, Robert, you got to... Oh, he's going to pull it out from the pew. There we go. 
All right, Matthew 17, 21. So we'll let uh, Robert, you just tell me when you found it. And we'll look at it. You got it? All right, read Matthew 17, 21. All right, good. Jesus is talking about the demons and the disciples couldn't cast it out. And they asked, the, the, they asked Jesus why couldn't they cast it out. And Jesus responded. Read it again. Did you put it away already? All right, it's Matthew 17, 21. All right, Susan. Did you find it yet? What? It goes from 20 to 22. What are you talking about? It skipped... It skipped 21? How could it do that? <laughs> All right, Susan, don't look anymore because it's just not there. It's very weird. There's a footnote. Now, I would, <laughs> I would encourage you to, you know, how you're, you know how there's little numbers and little letters and stuff in Oh, what text omits this verse? Verse. You didn't read the whole thing there. N U. That's the that's the 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 Alexandrian text fan. The 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 the. Oh, it does say. Yeah, you've got a note. I know you've got a note there. So that's why I said you got to read your notes and the numbers there. Yeah. Now there are a number of places there. Most of the time. It's going to be a word that's missing or maybe just a, a phrase or a part of a verse. And so look at the notes. It'll say N-U. Some of the, what, what does the note say there? It says, oh, you, you read me your note. Read me your note again, Susan. Some manuscripts you, verse 20, and then verse 21 it says, yeah. but this kind does not go out. All right. Yeah, they, they, they've changed it, I think, because it used to say the oldest and best manuscripts omit this verse, which is which is a which is a partial judgment on you know the Alexandrian text family. They they like it and they consider that the best and the oldest, and but they've kind of softened their their view there. Anyway, this this is going to be a difference between if you're using a King James or a New King James, which is based on the Byzantine text family, and a newer version of the the Bible, which is based on the Alexandrian text family. You're going to have things like that, some verses that are missing. Now, it becomes more substantial if you go to like John chapter 8. There's a whole section there that's out in the newer versions. Your NIV is missing. But uh, you might want to turn to the end of Mark. Turn to the end of Mark. And somebody who has a New King James, turn to the end of Mark. And Susan, when you get there, just tell us what verse Mark 16 ends at. And when you get somebody, whoever, whoever finds the New King James Version at Mark 16, tell me what verse that ends at. Mark 16, verse 20. And Susan, Mark 16? What? No, 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 no. It's in brackets, right? It's got double brackets. What? All right, bring up your Bible here. No, that doesn't matter. It's just that if it's an NIV, that's what matters. All right. If they, if I don't believe, I do not believe you. If you are right, I would say I'd give you a hundred dollars or something, but I'm not going to do that. 
Oh, look at that. I am like, oh, 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 here it is, here it is, sorry. Uh, well, I have to say, I am like impressed that they've put it back in. Look what it says. The earlier manus- earliest manuscripts and some other ancients do not have sixteen nine through 20. Hey, they're headed in the right direction. That's good news. You've got a good NIV. Well, I should say a better NIV there, Susan. All right, Court was right on the money when he got you that NIV version. I wonder if that's the new... Uh, they, they did do a major revision. The he and she, they wanted to take out all the personal pronouns and stuff. You probably have that one. But the fact that they put that back in there without you know, brackets and stuff, that's pretty... Imp- I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and we have to make a distinction because it, that comment there actually um, produces infighting within the true church a lot of times. All right, so uh, we, have to, we have to understand there, there is a mechanic in the transmission of Scripture. And it is, I am just giving you just kind of scratching the surface. It is not easy, you know, going from the Greek manuscripts that we have to our English versions today. We're, we're talking about a huge process over literally, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. So, you know, we kind of quibble over this, and I do think it's important. I I mean, we have to ask the question, why is it missing in those manuscripts? We have to ask that question. However, we have to remember that when we're talking about taking away and adding to the Word of God, there are bigger enemies that are out there besides those of us who truly believe who are struggling to understand this. So if you have... Jehovah's Witnesses who are intentionally adding and taking away from their versions of the Bible. That is significant because they're doing it in direct attack of the Christian faith to establish their own faith. Um, if the Mormons dismiss the Bible, they say it's their, they say it's one of their books, but it's the fourth, and it's not used very much, and it's not important. That's significant. That's a significant putting aside of Scripture. And that's different than wrestling here. Now, I, I have to qualify that because you have the rise of higher criticism in Germany and you know, Europe, let me say, um, during the 18th century. And a lot of these scholars did not believe. And so they're putting together these processes um, that late in the game uh, that leads to the omission of a verse like Matthew seventeen twenty one, and maybe some of them had ulterior motives. You, you know, you have to wonder sometimes, and that's part of us trying to wrestle with, with it. But since then, you have had solid Christian scholars who have come to the translation. They have they have understood what the higher critic have done, and they have, they have come at it, you know, with honest, and honest eyes, and they still arrive at some of these conclusions. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's quite the same as that, although we have to be careful, and that is one of the considerations that we have to wrestle with when we're understanding and when we're choosing which versions of the Bible that we're going to use, right? Yeah. 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 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, what Jesus said is important. We don't want to omit it. And we'll come, I'm going to come to how important each word is okay, in a moment. So that's good. Um, here's one example that was kind of a surprise to me. I'd never really come across it. So this is the ESV, which the newer and the younger and more hip Christians are using this these days, the ESV version, <laughs> including some, you know, people that we love and know, like Ben and Colin, and, you know, using the ESV version, and, and that's fine. But here's, here's an interesting difference in the New King James in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. It says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And that, we know that. We know it that way. I've always known it that way, that verse. But in the ESV, in the newer translations, it says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And that's different. It's different. And so when we see that, then that's kind of our cue to, all right, why is it different? What's going on here? Why is the ESV using this? Or why, why did the New King James always use this? And, and we have to do some work. We have to study. So there are these kinds of differences. Now, in either case, the verse might not say the same thing, but the truth of the verse, uh, we probably can't, we're not going to be able, we're not going to deny the truth of the verse. We can find it from other scriptures and support, you know, what God is doing. And, and that's why, you know, when we talk about 95% um, accurate uh, with respect to the differences between the versions, we're talking about things like this, that uh, they don't, it, it, there's no heresy or different kind of teaching introduced as a result of it, of the difference. All right. So, because of this, I believe that a word-for-word -word translation is the best kind of translation that you should pick. And for this, I want to go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. And I have run out of time, so I'm going to have to leave our, our discussion here at this point. But we'll pick it up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Let me read the verse to you. And it says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And this verse, Matthew 5.18, really sheds light on what is important when, when we come to the Word of God. What are we looking for? What is important in it? And... My teaser is this, are we looking for the ideas that are conveyed or are we looking for the actual, maybe, words that are inspired or given? So I've kind of tipped my hat on that one and just kind of thrown it out there until next time, okay? Any questions to end with from anything that we've said? I know I didn't get to the, I didn't even get to the question you guys are all waiting for me to answer. But uh, anyway, we'll have to wait until next time. Any, any final questions or comments? Anthony? Oh, don't ask me about one of the versions on there. No, go ahead. Go ahead and ask. I'm going to like three different categories. So I'm yeah. Like, these are the best. These are okay. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. You're jumping the gun there. You're jumping the gun there. And I'm not going to answer that until next time. <laughs>